This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. World War II was raging in Europe when the calendar turned to 1940, and since it was happening primarily on the European continent, Americans were, for the most part, living life as usual. President Franklin Roosevelt reinforced the idea that the United States would stay out of the affairs of the war, pressing Congress to pass the Neutrality Act in August 1940. Now, that wouldn't last too long as Roosevelt pledged aid to those countries ravaged by Adolf Hitler's raid on Europe. Hitler's bombing of London in September made worldwide news, as did Roosevelt's election to a third term as U.S. president. Hollywood was helping audiences forget the looming troubles of the war with some splashy productions, buoyed by the Christmas 1939 premiere of Gone with the Wind that had audiences lined up at the box office through summer 1940. While Disney was increasing his output of animated feature films, releasing two of them in 1940 to critical acclaim. And after a four-year break from directing, Charlie Chaplin was back with another hit that was a thinly veiled jab at Hitler. Things largely remained the same with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences concerning nominating achievements for the annual Academy Awards. But in an effort to increase its membership and to have more representation in each industry, the Academy opened branches beyond putting members into either the arts branch or the sciences branch. Now, every Academy Award category had a branch in the Academy, including ones for music. The Academy bylaws don't mention the roles that each branch had, so it appears to allow only the creation of the new branches with more guidance to follow. Even the original branches for actors, directors, producers, and writers don't appear to have much of a function other than to classify where each Academy member belongs. One of the only major changes to qualification for an Oscar was allowing non-American films to compete for awards. But foreign-made films were on a bit of hiatus with World War II halting production of films in Europe. This is one reason why Alfred Hitchcock made the move to Hollywood after 16 movies in his native England and made a real impact with his first two American films getting nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. One of them, Rebecca, won the 1940 Best Picture Oscar. After hearing only four songs nominated for the Academy Award in 1939, we have nine tunes up for the award in 1940. The rules for nominations remained the same. Studios and production companies voted on their best song of the year and submitted that song to the Academy. The year 1940 is memorable because it's the first time in six years that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers aren't on screen together. Their last film together was 1939's The Story of Vernon and Irene Castle, which had the original song Only When You're in My Arms, but it was passed over by RKO for an Academy Award nomination by the more superior tune Wishing in the more superior film Love Affair. Fred Astaire came back for another musical film in 1940, and it gave him another Academy Award nominated song. As for Ginger Rogers, her desire to perform in non-musical films paid off greatly with Kitty Foyle, in which she plays a shop girl in love with two men from different backgrounds. The performance won her the Academy Award for Best Actress and cemented her status as one of Hollywood's most bankable personalities. Since I just teased Fred Astaire's return to introducing Academy Award-nominated songs, let's start there 
with the song Love of My Life from the musical Second Chorus. It's the second film from Astaire away from RKO Pictures since 1934, starting an on-again, off-again relationship with Paramount Pictures. Second Chorus was directed by H.C. Potter, who had directed the story of Vernon and Irene Castle. It was independently produced by Boris Morris and distributed by Paramount Pictures. This is important to note because we'll talk about another nominated song from a Paramount Pictures movie later in this episode. Because Paramount only distributed Second Chorus, the studio didn't have a say in which song from Second Chorus made the list of Academy Award nominees. It was up to those involved with the film, mostly producer Boris Morris. The idea from the film came from Morris, who wanted to put band leader and clarinetist Artie Shaw into his own movie. Once Fred Astaire became attached to the project, there wasn't a script or much of a plot to help develop a script, but it always remained that Artie Shaw would play himself. Astaire obviously wanted a few dance numbers in the film, and his only other stipulation was that he get to conduct Artie Shaw's band in a scene that also included him dancing. The script started to come together with Astaire playing a trumpet player named Danny. Burgess Meredith played Hank, Astaire's rival trumpet player in a college band, which they have been performing in long past their college years by managing to fail classes seven years in a row. Once they are officially dismissed from the band, they happen to meet Paulette Goddard's character, named Ellen, get her fired from her job, and then see her get hired as Artie Shaw's secretary-slash-manager. Artie Shaw's music permeates the film, but he only contributed music for one of the film's three songs, and that was Love of My Life. It originates organically in the film, coming just before Danny is set to audition for a spot in Artie Shaw's band. While he and Ellen are talking backstage, Artie Shaw and his band are playing a jazz number on stage, which happens to be the melody for the song. Danny is trying to profess his love for Ellen, and after hearing the music playing on the other side of the door, he uses it to launch into song. Ellen. So I take the vocal. Would you like to be the love of my life? For always. And always watch over me to square my blunders and share my dreams one day with caviar, next day a chocolate bar. Would you like to take the merry-go-round? I'll need you I need you just wait till you see I hope in your horoscope there is room for a dog who adores you that would make the only dream of my life come true for the love of my life is you. An often told tale about the creation of the song goes that Shaw and lyricist Johnny Mercer cranked out Love of My Life during their lunch hour one day. It's not uncommon for songs to be written quickly, especially when the songwriters strike magic at the same time, or when they are as talented as Artie Shaw and Johnny Mercer. Mercer told Shaw to hold off presenting the song because if the executives knew that it was written so quickly and so easily, they might not think it's a good song and refuse to hear it. 
Shaw took his advice, the song stayed in the movie, and Artie Shaw was an Academy Award nominee for his work on the song as well as for the score he wrote for the film, which includes his Concerto for Clarinet. The lyrics for Love of My Life do well with catchy rhymes, including the line, I hope in your horoscope there is room for a dope who adores you. Mercer made some contributions to the screenplay as a way to keep the lyrics to Love of My Life weaved into the plot. Whenever Danny did something good, he mentioned being off the merry-go-round. And when things went bad, Ellen would remark they are back on the merry-go-round. Fred Astaire performs a humorous version of Love of My Life later in the movie after his audition goes wrong. He finds himself working in a restaurant playing trumpet with a Russian band. And when Ellen walks in, he performs a Russian dance before singing his love song to Ellen in part Russian, part English, with a very Eastern European musical arrangement. Ellen recognizes him and can't stop laughing at him. Vodka bublish idol of my life. Avec beef borscht, cocktail robina, ninachki rata, romano caviar, urshiski chocolate bar. He's miles away, black screaming at some little girl on the steps of Russia. You can tell by his face he's loved and suffered. In his autobiography, Fred Astaire had mostly good memories of working on second chorus. But in 1968, nine years after his autobiography was published, Astaire called Second Chorus, quote, the worst film I ever made, end quote. It made some money for Paramount, but yeah, the reviews weren't as great as his work with RKO, where the major difference was his dance partner. Perhaps the smaller budget and lack of a cohesive script couldn't be helped by Fred Astaire simply dancing. And Artie Shaw was so put off by movies that he never acted again. Johnny Mercer scored his second Academy Award nomination for Love of My Life and earned number three the same year with another hit, this time for RKO Pictures and with composer Jimmy McHugh. The movie is called You'll Find Out, and it features the RKO submission for the Best Song Academy Award, I'd Know You Anywhere. Without Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, RKO Pictures had to look elsewhere to continue its movie musical success. The studio had a new face on its roster, though his voice was very familiar. Kay Kaiser had been entertaining radio audiences with his weekly show Kay Kaiser and the College of Musical Knowledge for two years. It's part quiz show and part musical performance program. In an attempt to capitalize on his success, RKO signed a contract with Kaiser for a movie called That's Right, You're Wrong in 1939. The movie made money, so 
you'll find out went immediately into production to further capitalize on Kaiser's talents as an entertainer. The film features Kaiser and his band attending a birthday party for a woman played by Helen Parrish. Also in the film were horror movie stars Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Peter Lorre playing the film's villains. These three were not playing their famous roles of Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and Detective Moto, respectively, but RKO hoped their presence would attract more ticket buyers. The movie involves a murder plot, a mysterious seance, and lots of lightning and thunder. The setting doesn't seem right for the nominated song, which is one reason why it stands out. It's the only one of the five songs written by Jimmy McHugh and Johnny Mercer that isn't comical or fast-paced in nature, introduced as a song performed before dinner by one of the guests, played by Jenny Sims. She's a regular performer on Kaiser's radio shows and was part of That's Right, You're Wrong in a couple of scenes. Backed by Kaiser's band and a toy piano, Sims sings of a man she loves but has only dreamed about. The song is only a minute and 15 seconds long, and to get the most out of Sims in the movie, the song is repeated in a slightly different key. I'd know you anywhere I'd know that grin I'd know you anywhere When you walked in I would tingle with a single glance In your eyes Watching the starlight Dance in your eyes mm, You saw my vacant I'd love you anywhere, honest I would. I was certain this would happen, strange as it seems. I'd know you anywhere. song gets a reprise at the end of the film when Kaiser and his band return for another radio performance. At the party, 
Kaiser discovered a device that allows a person's voice to be distorted to sound like a musical instrument. It doesn't appear to have been a real-life device, only created for the film. Think of it as the 1940s version of Auto-Tune. We get to hear one of the band members sing I'd Know You Anywhere with this device, sounding like a saxophone and then a trumpet. I'd know you anywhere, I'd know that grin. I'd know you anywhere when you walked in. Sales of Jenny Sims's record soared, and the sheet music was highly requested and performed at dance halls across the country. Composer Jimmy McHugh was on the path to superstardom with Dorothy Fields in the early 1930s, but they ended their partnership and McHugh had trouble finding a compatible lyricist in the five years since. Johnny Mercer might not have been that lyricist. McHugh seemed to be out to annoy Mercer, who didn't like McHugh's abrasive style. So after writing songs for You'll Find Out, McHugh and Mercer parted ways. Mercer's two Academy Award nominations in one year was slightly overshadowed in Hollywood by his somewhat public affair with actress Judy Garland. In 1941, Mercer was 31. Garland was 18 and engaged to musician David Rose, who was not really able to propose to Garland because he was going through divorce proceedings with Martha Ray. The affair was brief but scandalous, and though they broke it off so Garland could marry Rose, Johnny Mercer called Judy Garland his one true love. They rekindled their love affair many years later, and Mercer wrote a couple of long songs for Garland, thinly veiled as testaments of his love to her. Another composer who was in high demand was Harry Warren, the Academy Award-winning composer of Lullaby of Broadway and already a three-time nominee. Warren was already being called the father of the movie musical, having written the music for 42nd Street back in 1933, and being a part of Busby Berkeley's success in the years that followed. In 1938, Warren wrote his final song score for Busby Berkeley, Garden of the Moon, and set off for a long collaboration with Mac Gordon at 20th Century Fox. Gordon had established a strong sovereignty relationship with Harry Revel in the 1930s, first on Broadway with such shows as Smiling Faces, then to Hollywood with songs for the 1934 film She Loves Me Not that contained the Academy Award-nominated song Love and Bloom, which they didn't write. After their contract with Paramount ended, Gordon and Revel moved to 20th Century Fox and wrote songs for a lot of small films. For reasons that have not been publicly disclosed, Warren and Revel ended their partnership in 1939. At the same time, Warren was ending his collaboration with Al Dubin, which opened the door for Warren and Gordon to start a collaboration at Fox. Their first movie together might have turned out to be the most creative one yet, Down Argentine Way. The movie focuses on an Argentinian family of horse breeders, which includes the son Ricardo played by American Don Amici in another one of his early films under contract with Fox. The movie takes place mostly in Argentina and required Gordon and Warren to write songs with a Latin flavor and often performed in Spanish. It's obvious Harry Warren had a flair for writing South American music, even though nothing in his repertoire before 1940 contained such a heavy Latin flavor. Every song is orchestrated with typical South American instruments, including maracas and guitars. Many of the songs are performed more than once, including the main love song, Two Dreams Met. 
but it's the fiery title song down Argentina way that 20th Century Fox submitted as its Academy Award nominee. We first hear it over the opening titles, but only briefly, teasing us with rumbas and tangos to tickle your spine. Ricardo comes to the United States with hopes of selling some of his father's prized horses, and he sings the full version of Down Argentina Way in an attempt to woo a potential buyer played by Betty Grable. At the time she was cast in Down Argentine Way, Grable had become tired of Hollywood. 20th Century Fox CEO Daryl Zanuck had snatched her up, signed her to a long-term contract, and thrust her immediately into the leading role of Glinda in Down Argentine Way. Glinda wants to buy Ricardo's best horse for $5,000, and the two meet at a swanky country club to talk about it. Before they do, Ricardo sits at the piano and performs Down Argentina Way in Spanish. This starts a five-minute production number that segues into Glinda's performance of the song, in English this time, before going into a dance. When she's done with that, she and Ricardo sing the song accompanied by an unseen chorus. Also note the fun kissing sounds people make after each verse, helping to musically fill out the measure and provide a little bit more sensuality to the song. Say mañana, it's just 
just to let you know you're gonna meet again. I'll bet an old castanet that you will never forget Argentina. Where there are rumors and tangos to tickle your spine, moonlight and music and orchids and wine, you'll want to stay down Argentina way. performance features the only conventional orchestration of Warren's melody in the film, since it's played by the orchestra at the very upscale American Country Club. A group of bongo players are added to the scene to add some spice to the music as the country club dancers do a little bit of dirty dancing, or as much as the production code and their Anglo-Saxon sensibilities would allow. Grable gets to do a solo dance, which shows that she's no Ginger Rogers or Eleanor Powell, but she's able to hold her own. As I mentioned in the previous episode, studios weren't giving up on making large-scale musical set pieces for film, but they were not putting them up for Academy Award nomination. So Down Argentina Way marks a return of that big-scale song to be nominated for an Oscar, the likes of which we haven't seen since Whispers in the Dark three years earlier. Johnny Mercer had some help in crafting the Spanish version of his lyrics for Down Argentina Way. Carlos Albert is barely a footnote in Hollywood history, but played a big role in making Down Argentina Way stand out. Very little can be found about Carlos Albert, except that he was born in 1901 in Argentina and was mostly a dancer or extra in the movies. He worked as the technical advisor for Down Argentina Way and helped with those Spanish lyrics. He doesn't get to have his name listed with Warren and Mercer on the official Academy record, 
likely because he did not contribute new lyrics to Down Argentina Way or any of the other songs in the movie, but only provided translations. That must not have been enough for 20th Century Fox to give him on-screen credit or for the Academy to consider him as a co-songwriter. He died in 1980 at age 78 with no official Hollywood screen credit or recognition. Down Argentina Way gets one more major performance in the movie. Glinda and her aunt fly to Buenos Aires after Ricardo refuses to sell her the horse. At a nightclub, Glinda enjoys a performance of the song by the Nicholas Brothers, who were extremely popular for their acrobatic and seemingly impossible tap dance moves. Though the brothers, Fayard and Harold, were American, they sing Carlos Albert's Spanish lyrics before performing an elaborate dance sequence. Va, 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 va
So if you haven't seen the movie Down Argentine Way, I suggest you find a copy of it, if only to see these two artists at their prime and singing the title song in excellent Spanish. The Nicholas Brothers continued to dazzle moviegoers with their signature dance moves, which was called flash dancing in the 1930s and 1940s. Yep, flash dancing was a word long before it became part of the regular lexicon in the 1980s. The biggest contribution they made to film appears in the 1943 film Stormy Weather and the jump and jive sequence which has them jumping over music stands and on top of a grand piano. They were recognized for their work in 1991 with the Kennedy Center Honors and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, among other special recognitions. Bob Crosby, the younger brother of Bing Crosby, released a commercial recording of the English lyrics for Down Argentine Way, and his record peaked at number two on the Billboard charts in January 1941. Lyricist Johnny Mercer was a gifted vocalist, but it's going to be a couple of years before he starts making records of the songs he writes. Like You'll Find Out and Second Chorus, we have another film built around a non-actor that features an Oscar-nominated song. The film I'm referring to is Music of My Heart, and it stars the very successful singer Tony Martin as Bob, an actor who is suddenly required to be deported out of the United States because of an administrative oversight. I mentioned Tony Martin in my episode covering the songs of 1936 when he briefly appeared in Sing Baby Sing to belt out the nominated song When Did You Leave Heaven. Since then, Martin had acted in 12 films as himself or as minor character singing in a nightclub. He started getting top billing in 1937, Sing and Be Happy. In Music of My Heart, Martin sings all six of Chet Forrest and Bob Wright's songs, including the nominated tune It's a Blue World. Forrest and Wright had been nominated before, working on the songs for the Joan Crawford movie Mannequin in 1938, that resulted in the nominated song Always and Always. And remember I told you that they were not just songwriting partners, but romantic partners, something that was not very common back at the time. The two had worked steadily between their Oscar nominations, crafting songs for more than a dozen movies in 18 months. Their opportunity to write songs for Tony Martin was probably their greatest assignment up to that point, especially since most of their previous songs had appeared in forgettable movies and never sold many records. And having Tony Martin's voice on this song was destined to change that. But just a brief synopsis of the plot of Music My Heart will help shape the importance of It's a Blue World. After missing the boat that was supposed to return him to his parents' home country, Bob hides out in the home-slash-restaurant of Rita Hayworth's Patricia, who was also supposed to be on that boat and marry a rich newspaper magnate. After a bit of confusion and scheming by the rich man's butler, Patricia decides to marry for money instead of committing to Bob. Before he is taken by the authorities to be deported, Bob is allowed to perform on a radio show using the money to help Patricia's failing restaurant. The song It's a Blue World expresses Bob's sadness that he's about to live in a world without Patricia, and while he sings it, Patricia hears it on the radio while having dinner with her soon-to-be husband. And now, the young man you've been reading so much about, Mr. Bob Gregory, singing It's a Blue World. You were the light that brightened my life, my stars and moon and sun. Then with your flight came the night in my life, no laughs, no love. 
Naturally, this song was going to be a hit for Tony Martin, who sold about a half million copies of this song alone. It also meant a windfall for Chet Forrest and Bob Wright, since their names would appear on the record as the songwriters, increasing their worth in Hollywood to the level of Irving Berlin, Johnny Mercer, Harry Warren, and others. At least for the moment. Forrest and Wright had an embarrassment of riches with the songs they wrote for Music in My Heart. Two other songs in the movie would have been worthy Academy Award nominees, including the title song. Tony Martin sings this not long after It's a Blue World, when the plot resolves itself and Bob is allowed to stay in the country with Patricia by his side, of course. I've got music in my heart Oh, what music in my heart I can't eat, I can't talk without symphonies play. I've got feet that won't walk without swinging and swaying. My heart's made of singing strings. When they play, my heart has wings. I can't move from this groove with a spell that it's woven. I've got notes, but not notes that are popped and Beethoven. Let my heart sing out a star. Cause I've got music in my This song is happier, and it's also the title of the movie. But like always and always, the sentiment behind It's a Blue World doesn't last long. The feeling is fleeting, but perhaps those at Columbia Pictures that voted for this song liked its performance better than Music in My Heart. Or perhaps Forrest and Wright liked the sadder song better and convinced the voters to pick this song. 
Another song that would have been a great Academy Award nominee is Punchinello, a comedic song performed by Tony Martin after he arrives at Patricia's house. Just outside is a promotional event for a congressman, and while he and Patricia are enjoying a hot dog, the pet monkey of Patricia's uncle decides to climb a pole and disobey orders to come down. And of course, only Tony Martin's voice can convince a monkey to jump down. The title of the song is the name of the monkey, and while it might seem like a weird name, the melody accompanying the song stays with you. Punchinello, what's the matter? Surely this is idle chatter. All this talk that love has got you down. Must you be a Pagliacci crying? Only makes you splotchy. You're a funny figure of a clown. My fine, furry friend, be gone. Remember the show must go. Punchinello would have been the second nominated song to be not only the name of an animal, but to be sung to an animal, following in the popular footsteps of Jeepers Creepers. And it's sung later in the film as a standalone musical moment that could have been removed from the film with ease, but helped to increase the catchiness of the song. We may never know how It's a Blue World won the internal battle to earn an Academy Award nomination. Its success is undoubtable, helped by Tony Martin, of course. But it was a rare case in which the songwriters of a film present more than one viable option for competition in music's biggest award of the time. Before we move on, I want to highlight the great performance of child actor Edith Fellows in Music of My Heart. Four years earlier, she made her mark alongside Bean Crosby in Pennies from Heaven, and though Tony Martin doesn't sing to her in this movie, she does steal nearly all of her scenes away from the adults. She never got much recognition by peers, particularly in the form of a Juvenile Academy Award. Another great actor of the time was Deanna Durbin, the 1938 recipient of the Juvenile Academy Award for her work in That Certain Age. She had sung that film's nominated song, My Own, and though Judy Garland began to surpass her as the top female child actor of the year, Durbin was still putting out top performances. Durbin's big film of 1940 was Spring Parade, in which she played an Austrian country girl named Alanka, who finds herself whisked away to Vienna to get a job at a bakery, fall in love with a soldier, and meet the emperor. Durbin and her co-star, Robert Cummings, performed the first version of the nominated song, Waltzing in the Clouds. With the film set in Vienna, it's no surprise that we're getting a song about waltzing from composer Robert Stolz and lyricist Gus Kahn. Earlier in the film, a song was fashioned out of Johann Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz and performed admirably by Durbin as she rides through town with the music spilling out of the dance halls. She goes on a date with Robert Cummings' Corporal Harry to a beer garden, and she learns that Harry wants to be a composer. He stops short of dreaming of being famous, especially in the land of Strauss and Haydn. As they are talking, a melody he had been trying to capture earlier in the film returns to him, and he attempts to put it on paper and form a song out of it. 
That song is Waltzing in the Clouds, and Alonka stops the orchestra that is playing so Harry can continue to create the song. After their performance, the orchestra picks it up while Alonka and Harry dance, not in the clouds, but with their feet firmly on the ground. Corporal, people are waiting to dance. Oh, but they can dance to this. Waltzing, waltzing, high in the clouds. Now, you better listen to this, because in just a few minutes, we're all going to play it together. Waltzing, waltzing, high in the clouds. Drifting, dreaming, far from the crowds. Over a moonbeam, we stroll away. While the world below seems to roll away. And we go waltzing. Clouds, only you and I in the clouds. No one will hear when you call me your dear one while waltzing high in the clouds. Waltzing, waltzing high in the clouds, drifting, dreaming far Robert Cummings is no match for Deanna Durbin in terms of vocal talent, though they had great screen chemistry that they honed in 1939's Three Smart Girls Grow Up. Cummings had a wild journey to becoming a major talent at Universal in the 1940s. He spent years working in very small parts under two aliases on Broadway and in the movies. It wasn't until producer Joe Pasternak recognized his true talent that Cummings was able to find his place getting a seven-year deal at Universal that was cut short in 1941, with Cummings enlisting in the Civil Air Patrol and then the Army Air Forces. He worked as a freelance actor after World War II, but never got any leading roles. 
Cummings is quite good in Spring Parade, but it really is Deanna Durbin's show. She sings all of the songs and is in just about every scene. Her main focus in the film is to make sure the predictions that a fortune teller gave her at the start of the film come true, and in the end, they do. Harry is on his way to becoming a celebrated composer and conductor, and at the end of the movie, his first job is leading the Emperor's Orchestra in a performance of his song, with Alonka singing. Later, Harry and Alonka will take to the dance floor as an unseen chorus takes the song all the way through to the end credits. I was a mortal with feet on the ground There I was standing with people around Lovely music started somewhere And I started floating on air Into a dream world I was Oh, I'm so far. sorry I saw you smile Composer of Waltzing in the Clouds was Austrian-born Robert Stolz, so he was well-versed in the oom-pa-pa, oom-pa-pa of the waltz. Unlike Robert Cummings, Robert Stolz's journey to Hollywood is not as uplifting. After a modest career scoring German films in the early 1930s, Stolz had been imprisoned by the Nazi party in 1939 for trying to escape Nazi-run Germany in Paris. After his release in 1940, he went to New York City and held many concerts featuring his original compositions of Austrian music. Universal's desire to set a movie in Austria led the studio to hire Stolz to write the songs for Durbin to sing, and his first Hollywood assignment earned him his first Academy Award nomination. That would not be his last stint with Hollywood motion pictures as he wrote music for It Happened Tomorrow, a non-musical film in 1945 for which he received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score. 
Besides that, his work remained almost entirely in Austrian and German cinema until his death in 1975. Gus Kahn, the lyricist behind Waltzing in the Clouds, had remained busy since earning an Academy Award nomination for writing the song Carioca for Flying Down to Rio in 1934, the first year of the Academy Award for Best Song. In the six years since, he had crafted lyrics for more than 40 short and feature-length films. Very few of those movies garnered any notoriety or prominence at the time, except Captain's Courageous, which earned Spencer Tracy the first of two Academy Awards for acting. Part of the reason Khan wasn't able to climb up higher the ladder of Hollywood songwriters was his freelance status in Hollywood. Many of his peers were contracted to work for various studios, which meant they were often given the first pick of upcoming films or were at the top of the list for executives to choose. Perhaps Kahn's German background gave him the upper hand in getting the job to write lyrics for Spring Parade, and it's likely he and Stoles hit it off easily. Like Gus Kahn, another freelance lyricist working in Hollywood was Walter Bullock, who had been nominated for writing the 1936 song, When Did You Leave Heaven? Bullock worked on a few films with composer Harold Spina in 1938 and 1939 before he teamed up with Jewel Stein for Hit Parade of 1941, a musical romantic comedy that made its debut in 1940. The nominated song from the movie was Who Am I, marking the second time that the Small Republic Pictures had a song nominated for an Academy Award. But remember, the nominations were a guarantee for all studios if they submitted an eligible song to the Academy. Jules Stein, who was born Julius Stein in 1905, was born in London but moved with his family to the Midwest United States in 1913 and immediately was tabbed as a piano-playing prodigy and was performing by age 10 with traveling bands. Stein was first employed at 20th Century Fox as a vocal supervisor for the studio's musicals, but was encouraged by studio head Daryl Zanuck to take up songwriting. His first movie song was Kentucky Opera, a somewhat forgettable song for the forgettable 1938 musical Kentucky Moonshine. He wrote a full song score for 1940's Sing, Dance, Plenty Hot for Republic Pictures and was so praised for his proficiency that he was put on composing duties for Hit Parade of 1941. The movie precedes Singing in the Rain by 12 years, but the plots are fairly similar and it's amazing that Republic Pictures never sued MGM for essentially plagiarizing the plot of Hit Parade of 1941 in Singing in the Rain. Hit Parade of 1941 involves Kenny Baker as David, who owns a radio company after his dim-witted uncle trades it for cheap goods. The radio company is on the verge of closing with the advent of television, but a department store owner swoops in to save the radio company and turn it into a hit TV station. Its main show will feature the department store's owner's daughter as the headline singer, but the daughter is a terrible singer. To remedy the situation, David asks Pat, played by Frances Langford, to be the voice people hear while the daughter mouths the words on screen. Before the first broadcast, Pat sings Who Am I as a sort of audition for David. Pat sings of not being deserving of the man she loves, repeatedly singing the title question. David will take over the song and repeat the lyrics, suddenly putting some lyrical meaning to the song. Though the only instrument in the scene is the piano that David is playing, we'll hear some strings playing in the background. Look. 
song's meaning takes over David, and he gets up to kiss Pat at the end of the song. A couple of scenes later, we see Pat singing the song into a microphone in a closed room, while TV cameras show the untalented woman performing Who Am I and becoming a local sensation. By the way, the ruse is discovered later, though we get a happy ending as Pat is discovered as the new fresh face of TV and radio. Don't tell me this isn't almost exactly the plot of Singing in the Rain, with movies replacing TV as the medium of choice. Again, I think Republic Pictures missed out on a windfall of cash by not at least pursuing litigation against MGM. Our final three nominated songs of 1940 feature four of the top personalities of the year, one of which was No Bigger Than Your Hand. And I'm not talking about the five-foot-one Mickey Rooney. I'm referring to Jiminy Cricket, the narrator and soul of Walt Disney's second animated feature film, Pinocchio. The song he sings, When You Wish Upon a Star, became a classic the moment voice actor Cliff Edwards softly sang about taking your deepest desires and casting them to the nearest star in the sky. This was the second year in a row that an Academy Award-nominated song spoke of making wishes come true. The grown-up movie Love Affair featured the song Wishing in 1939, which was sung by children but was mostly about the two adult lead characters making their dreams of becoming successful come true by working hard. In Pinocchio, the wish in the song's title comes from puppet maker Geppetto, who wishes that the wooden puppet boy he has created will become a real boy. The song, written by Lee Harline and Ned Washington, begins in the opening credits, then continues into the actual film, where we see Jiminy Cricket sitting next to a book about Pinocchio. Star, 
desires will come to you If your heart is in your dream No request is too extreme When you wish upon a star As dreamers do Lyricist Ned Washington came from a musical family, but instead of wanting to be a musician, Ned wanted his gifts to the music world to be through the words. Washington loved poetry and wrote many poems in his youth. He came to Hollywood in 1929, just as talking pictures were developing, and he was immediately working on lyrics for Warner Brothers musicals. His first job writing a full song score for a movie musical was 1938's Tropic Holiday, which after this point should be never mentioned again. But it was the contract he signed in 1938 with Disney that would bring him immense success. Lee Harline had been a composer for Walt Disney cartoons since the first ones hit the silver screen in the early 1930s. His music was heard in almost all of the Silly Symphony shorts before taking on duties as an orchestrator for the music in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Ned Washington's first day at Disney involved meeting his collaborator, then taking part in storyboard meetings with Harline to create a song for Geppetto, one for Pinocchio, one for the boys on Pleasure Island, and even one about the big whale monstro. There was no intention to have a semi-serious ballad to open a picture, as the plan was to have an instrumental overture of the music to be featured in the actual film. But Harline and Washington wanted a song for the film that would fit into the plot and theme of the movie. Seeing the scene where Geppetto makes his wish to the wishing star, Harline and Washington went to work. Walt Disney loved the song they presented, but there was still a question of who would sing the song. The songwriters believed Geppetto would be the right person, but it didn't fit the character too well. Then the idea came for a very minor character to take on the song. That character was the cricket, which had a very, very small appearance in the original story by Carlo Collodi. In fact, the cricket dies in the book and comes back as a ghost throughout. But after lots of story meetings and after the songwriters pitched the cricket as the song's voice, the nameless cricket in the book became possibly the most famous character in the movie. And it's largely thanks to his performance of When You Wish Upon a Star. When we get our happy ending in Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket goes outside to thank the Blue Fairy. He gets his medal as an official conscience, and we hear a reprise of his song to close out the movie. When your heart is in your dream, no request is too 
Ned Washington wrote a few extra lines that Cliff Edwards performed on a recording for Decca Records the year that Pinocchio was released. The lines go, When a star is born, they possess a gift or two. One of them is this. They have the power to make a dream come true. Very few artists perform those lines, if only to help expand the recording beyond three minutes. Though Pinocchio was not a box office success in 1940, When You Wish Upon a Star helped the Pinocchio full soundtrack album become a big record seller for Disney. And if you have encountered anything related to the Walt Disney Company since the 1950s, you've heard many instrumental versions of the song introduced on Walt Disney TV shows, then at the beginning of Disney movies, and later on on the Walt Disney Cruise Lines. Jiminy Cricket was just as popular as any of the Seven Dwarfs, and probably more popular than Pinocchio himself. But he couldn't outdo the popularity of the top two movie stars in the world, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, especially when they appeared on the movie screen together. Their first on-screen pairing was 1939's Babes in Arms, which came out two months after The Wizard of Oz and was more of a star-making turn for Rooney, who earned a Best Actor Academy Award nomination. Eager to keep that movie relationship going, MGM cast them as high school sweethearts in Strike Up the Band for 1940. It was Garland's third movie after The Wizard of Oz, and her Mary Holden looks much more mature than Dorothy Gale. Rooney's energy as Jimmy Connors is infectious, and his singing, dancing, and acting are better than most actors twice his age. It might have been Busby Berkeley's plan as director to make the child actors look and sound like adults. He even had them dress in suit and ties, with the actresses definitely not wearing the dresses that their real-life peers would be wearing. The film itself continued to showcase the many talents of Mickey Rooney, including his very enthusiastic drum playing. After working with Rooney and Garland on Babes in Arms, songwriter Roger Edens was tasked with coming up with seven songs, most of them to be performed in major onstage productions with Jimmy's band playing the music and Mary singing along. The Academy Award-nominated song from the film is Our Love Affair, and we're introduced to it at Mary's home when Jimmy asks Mary if the song, which he wrote, is very good. He begins to play the melody on the piano and talks about the orchestrations he hopes to add to it one day when he's a famous conductor. He begins to sing the song with Mary joining in. Mary, who has been carrying a torch for Jimmy, wants the song to be about them, but Jimmy keeps it strictly platonic. You'll hear in the different ways they sing how they are approaching the meaning of the song. For Mary, it's literal. Jimmy is just playing the notes and singing the words. Something's been troubling me lately. What? Well, do you think our love affair has enough punch in it? Hmm? Our love affair. Oh, well, now that you mention it, Jimmy... Because I got a new arrangement on it. Oh. Oh, it's a dynamite love song. Just made order for you. I'll play it. <laughs> Wait till you get a load of this intro. I got some chords that are really out of this world. Listen. Starts off a little flary. Are you listening to me? And it softens down here. It's violins, you know. And the orchestra sneaks back in for the vocal. Our love affair will be such fun will be the envy of everyone those famous 
once lovers will make them forget from Adam and Eve to scarlet and red with flutes and oboes when youth has had its merry flame we'll spend our evenings remembering to happy people who say on the square with fiddles isn't ours a lovely love affair? Come on, sit down. Try it. Jimmy, are you sure you want me to sing with the band? You're not just... Well, of course not. We need you, Mary. You're as important to me as a brass section. That's pretty important. Try the verse. Here we are, two very bewildered people. Here we are, two babes that are lost in the world. We're not quite certain what has happened to us. This lovely thing that's so marvelous. But right from here, the future looks awfully good. Our love affair was meant to be it's me for you dear and you for me will fuss will quarrel and tears start to brew but after the tears our love will smile through I'm sure that I could never hide the thrill I get when you're by my side. And when we're older, we'll probably declare, wasn't ours a lovely bake a chocolate cake the kind of cake mother used to make you hungry uh-huh come on let's go see if we can find some of that cake swell i hope there's some left daddy hasn't eaten it all up <laughs> the film's highlight scene is a fantasy sequence in which jimmy imagines the orchestra he would put together if he got the chance to play at Carnegie Hall. Using a bowl of fruit, he maps out where each section of the orchestra would be before the fruit comes to life and begins playing an instrumental version of Our Love Affair. Thank you. 
that's the way it's going to be. Success! The fruit orchestra scene was conceived by future director Vincente Minnelli, who had just arrived in Hollywood with a contract in hand under MGM. Producer Arthur Freed asked Minnelli for advice on a separate scene, then Minnelli heard about the need for a production number for Our Love Affair. Knowing that the scene featured a bowl of fruit and that Jimmy was looking to illustrate his dream orchestra, the idea sprang from his head and the rest is history. And it was also the beginning of the relationship between Minnelli and Garland, who would make movies together, as well as a famous child named Liza. But back to our love affair. Perhaps it was this stop-motion animation, not really a first for Hollywood, but a first for making non-animal things come to life, that convinced folks at MGM to make Our Love Affair the Academy Award-nominated song. And perhaps it was Arthur Freed himself who provided the big push since he contributed music and lyrics to the song, the only one in the movie that Roger Edens did not write solo. There's a torch song that Judy Garland sings in the library called Nobody, that she knocks out of the park, and could have been a great Academy Award nominee to counter Over the Rainbow. But Judy Garland will have more chances to sing big torch songs for Academy Awards consideration. The final scene of Strike Up the Band features Jimmy conducting a very large orchestra, and it features the title song, written in 1927 by the Gershwin brothers, Ira and George. After that, the scene includes some of Eden's songs from earlier in the film, including a brief reprise of Our Love Affair, which Jimmy now sings as lovingly as Mary. As beloved as Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland were, they were not really in the same stratosphere as Bing Crosby, who starred in the Paramount Pictures musical Rhythm on the River and sings our ninth-nominated song, Only Forever. It is not a sequel to Crosby's 1936 movie Rhythm on the Range, though the word rhythm has a long association with Crosby. From 1928 to 1931, Crosby was the lead singer of the Rhythm Boys before he began acting in movies. 
and Rhythm on the River was the third of four movies starring Crosby that used the word rhythm. This is Paramount's second film on the Best Song Academy Award list for 1940, which happened because, as I said earlier, Second Chorus was only distributed by Paramount, not produced by the studio. That turned out to be fortunate. Otherwise, songs by Bring Cosby and Fred Astaire would have been fighting for one Academy Award nomination slot in 1940. In Rhythm on the River, Bing Crosby plays Bob Summers, who is working for a famous singer named Oliver who takes public credit for the songs Bob writes for him. Mary Martin plays Cherry, who has a gift for lyric writing and also takes a job as a ghostwriter for Oliver, not knowing Bob is also employed by Oliver. Bob and Cherry find themselves spending a weekend at a hotel in the country where Cherry wants to write her lyrics away from the bustle of the big city. While there, she hears Bob playing a piano and starts working out the lyric to match the melody. Having written down the lyrics, she goes to Bob and asks him to put the music and lyrics together. Hold it there for me, will you? Be good if I can remember the tune now. <laughs> Do I want to be with you As the years come and go only forever If you care to know the chance Would I grant all your wishes And be proud of the time Only forever If someone How long would it take me to be near if you beckoned? Offhand, I would figure less than a second. Do you think I'll remember how you look when you smile? Only forever. Only Forever is strongly connected to the plot of Rhythm on the River, especially at the end when it helps to force Oliver to publicly reveal his ruse. When Bob and Cherry decide to leave Oliver's employment and sell their own songs, they find that Cherry is the main attraction and not Bob. Cherry is asked to be a nightclub singer and to pay for a dazzling dress for her debut, Bob puts up the sheet music for Only Forever as collateral for a loan from Oliver. A little misunderstanding causes a backer of Oliver's upcoming show to take the sheet music for Only Forever and ask Cherry to sing it at one of her nightclub gigs. Knowing that the lyrics are her own and not wanting Oliver to take any more credit for her work, she threatens to expose Oliver's ruse before singing the song. Oliver decides to sort of reveal that he has not been writing his own songs, and introduces Bob and Cherry as the next songwriting stars. The film ends with them performing a full orchestral arrangement of their song, which takes on a literal meaning as Bob publicly announces he and Cherry will be married.
Forever was written by Johnny Burke and James Monaco. Burke's partnership with Crosby began with the very successful Pennies from Heaven in 1936. When Crosby moved over to Paramount in 1938, Burke went with him and stayed there for his entire career. James Monaco had been with Paramount since 1936 and found himself connected with Burke and Crosby in 1938 for Dr. Rhythm. This continued through to 1940, where Monaco found his music on more records than he thought possible. Three of the songs from Rhythm on the River were hits for Bing Crosby, led by Only Forever. Though artists and the public had various lists published that would rank how a popular song was, it wasn't until July 1940 that we had the first ranking of top sellers from Billboard magazine, which would evolve from the Billboard music popularity chart as it was known from 1940, to the Hot 100 starting in 1955 to present day. Frank Sinatra, then the lead singer of the Tommy Dorsey Band, earned the first official number one Billboard song with I'll Never Smile Again in July 1940, staying there for an amazing 12 weeks. After Bing Crosby's record of Only Forever was released in September, it topped the Billboard list for nine straight weeks. Only an Artie Shaw performance at 13 weeks and that Frank Sinatra song did better in 1940 than Only Forever. The Hollywood trade paper Variety might not have read the tea leaves about the popularity of the movie's songs, saying, quote, Although Only Forever gets strong plugging in the picture, there's a good chance that the title's tune, Rhythm on the River, sung by Crosby, will catch strongest pop favor. End quote. The title song is not as lyrical as Only Forever, but was a bit catchier because it was not a conventional song, describing the beat of a jazz song and how it compares to other genres using a toe-tapping melody. When you hear a real hep cat, take a chorus in a flat. That's the rhythm on the river, you know what that means. He comes from New Orleans, when a drummer starts to ride, and a rim shot breaks the hide. That's the rhythm on the river, can't mistake that beat. He comes from Basin Street, now how do you like a bugle called Rag? You like it played as a waltz with a Dixieland shag? I'll take the word right out of your mouth, you've got to play it the same as the sound in New York or any town, when a band swings out low down. That's the rhythm on the river, not the Hudson Bud, just Mississippi Mud. Crosby was very prevalent in the movie theater in 1940. Before Rhythm on the River was released in September, 
he teamed up with Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour for A Road to Singapore, the first of seven musical comedy films with this trio. Critics hailed Crosby, L'Amour, and Hope as the best movie trio the silver screen ever had, and just about all seven of the road movies ranked in the top ten box office each year. None of the songs from the road movies were nominated for an Academy Award, though Hope and Crosby's recording of the title song for the 1942 movie Road to Morocco was placed on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 best movie songs of the year at number 95. So, I've given you the nine nominated songs of 1940. Here's a quick recap of the titles before I reveal which one received the title of Academy Award winner. In alphabetical order, they are Down Argentina Way, I'd Know You Anywhere, It's a Blue World, Love of My Life, Only Forever, Our Love Affair, Waltzing in the Clouds, When You Wish Upon a Star, and Who Am I? For the first 13 years of the Academy Awards, the names of the winners were given to the press the day of the ceremony for print in the evening editions. That meant nominees sometimes knew their fates before attending the ceremony and made plans accordingly. But for the ceremony held on February 27, 1941, the names of the winners were not announced until the category was introduced that night. It created a bunch of suspense in the Biltmore Hotel that night and started the famous phrase, The Envelope, Please as the presenter was handed the envelope by a representative of Price Waterhouse, which was the accounting firm that had counted the votes. Responsible for announcing the name of the Best Song Award was Buddy De Silva, who was nominated the previous year for Wishing from a Love Affair. Perhaps it stung a little bit for De Silva to open the envelope and see the word WISH written inside, then announce that Lee Harline and Ned Washington had won for writing When You Wish Upon a Star. And for the second year in a row, a film won the Best Song and Best Original Score Award. Harline and Washington shared the score award with Paul J. Smith, who was responsible for the underscore, which included numerous variations on the Academy Award-winning song. As I mentioned earlier, the Academy Award win for When You Wish Upon a Star was just the beginning of the song's popularity. Sixty years later, the song ranked number seven on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 best songs of the first 100 years of movies. In addition to keeping the names of the winners secret until the ceremony, a few other historical moments took place at the 1941 Oscar ceremony. President Franklin Roosevelt addressed the audience through a radio broadcast from the White House. It was the first time, and not the last time, that a sitting president took part in the Academy Awards ceremony. Walter Brennan became the first three-time Oscar winner, taking home his third Supporting Actor Award for The Westerner. And though he had only been host of the Oscar ceremony for two years, and in the movie business for three, Bob Hope received an honorary Academy Award for, quote, his unselfish services to the motion picture industry, end quote. Hope is going to get an amazing four more honorary Oscars in his career as actor, entertainer, and host of the show. This would be Gus Kahn's final Best Song nomination and one of his final films. He died of a heart attack on October 8, 1941. On the next episode of the Best Song Podcast, World War II's influence will be felt in the Best Original Song category, and five Academy Award winning songwriters will be among the nominees looking to make a play for the next Academy Award winning song. Looking forward to sharing these songs with you. 
Before we close out this discussion of the nominated songs of 1940, I want to give a special thank you to Marcelo Cabral and Alex Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to everyone for listening to the Best Song Podcast and for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.